Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. We're going to be focused principally in verse 9, but let's again read for context and ask the Lord for His blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of, of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we recognize as we come to the text this morning, we are coming into your presence. We are standing on holy ground. Help us, Lord. Help us to know the things that you have for us, that we might glorify you, that we might be changed from within to become more like your glorious Son. Thank you for your word and your spirit who guides us and protects us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you've been with us for the last many weeks, you know that we've been working our way through Romans chapter 8. And Paul is setting forth two kinds of people, really only two kinds, um, as representative of all mankind in the world. There are those who are in the flesh, and there are those who are in the spirit. We are either in the flesh or in the spirit, not both. All mankind can be divided into these two categories. Another way of saying that is you're either spiritually dead or you're spiritually alive. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You're saved or you're not saved. These are all synonymous ideas. And Paul has been setting forth evidences in the first eight verses so far of chapter 8 so that we would know which of these two types of people we are. We saw that it's the Spirit of God who has united us to Christ, who has placed us into Christ. He is the reason we are in Christ and He, the greater governing power of the Spirit, has freed us from the governing power of sin and death that used to hold sway over us. The gospel message has been announced 
again in Romans chapter 8, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of flesh, sinful flesh, that is. He was not a sinner Himself, but God the Father sent His own Son, His precious Son, in the likeness of a sinner in order that He would represent us suitably. Stand in our place at Calvary and be punished for the sins of all His people. We couldn't keep the law in and of ourselves. We were weak through the flesh, but God did what we couldn't do by sending His Son to condemn sin in the flesh. He kept the law perfectly, and He paid for our penalty to the full. And we saw that that was in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us, that we would become more like Christ, that the holiness, righteousness, and goodness of the law, which is a direct reflection of God Himself, would now be evidenced more and more in us. This is a call to progressive sanctification that the Spirit of God is doing in the, in the hearts of every one of His people. This is why Christ died. Not just to pardon us from our sins, not just to keep us from hell and to grant us eternal life, but that we might walk in His way, that we might bring Him glory in this earth by reflecting His character. Holiness is the reason Christ died for us. And then we saw that those who live, verse 5, or have their being, those who are fleshly, of the flesh, are characterized by this. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Their inclination, the things that they are naturally drawn to, are the things of this earth. But the opposite for those who are of the Spirit. Those who have been born of Him seek the things of the Spirit. They set their minds there regularly as the pattern of their new life. The natural man, the fleshly man, is death. He's dead. He has no ability to respond to spiritual truth. He has no appreciation for spiritual truth. In fact, his mind and his outlook is directly antithetical to the things of God. It's enmity. It's hatred itself. It's a rebellion against God. And he says those people in that condition have no ability to please God. No chance. They have no ability and they have no interest because they have no ability. Nothing of the flesh pleases God. That's an important truth to remember. There's nothing that we can bring or that anyone can bring to God as the work of their hands and present it to Him and say, look what I've done for you, Lord. The Scripture in the Proverbs says, even the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God. Even their best sacrifice is an abomination to God. Today we're going to look at verse 9, and really ask the question, what does it mean to be in the Spirit? What does it mean to be in the Spirit? That's the phrase that Paul uses, and I think there's some misunderstanding about that. At least historically, there has been a lot of misunderstanding, and there may be some misunderstanding among us this morning. So what does it mean to be in the Spirit? And how, does it, how is it that anyone comes to be in the Spirit? We're going to look at, is there there something that we can do to put ourselves into the Spirit? And if there is, is there something that we can do to take ourselves out of the Spirit? Or can He leave us once He's entered us? 
What are the marks of the person who has the Spirit of God? Those are all the questions that I hope to consider with you this morning and, and to provide answers to. The late Dr. Lloyd-Jones once referred to this verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. He, he referred to this verse as the ultimate doctrine. He said it is the highest peak of the Christian doctrine of salvation. I don't know about you, but for me, that's worthy of attention. John Owen, the great Puritan divine of the 17th century, said this regarding the essentialness of the Holy Spirit to Christianity. He said, quote, Take away the Spirit from the gospel, and you render it a dead letter of no more use to Christians than the Old Testament is of to the Jews. End quote. The Spirit is essential. He is what makes Christianity Christianity. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit of God. So let's look at this together and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. I want you to notice first of all that Paul is calling out a contrast in verse 9 from where he left off in verse 8. He had said in verse 8 that no one who's in the flesh can please God. He says it in the negative. You are not in the, excuse me, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So this you is in contrast to the those he's been talking about in verses 5 through 8 who are in the flesh. You are not those people. You are in the Spirit. What does it mean to be in the flesh or in the Spirit? Well, we've, I think we've talked a little bit about this as we've been going through this series, but the flesh refers to a few different things related to humanity. It refers to fallen humanity, sinful humanity, humanity without the influence of the Spirit of God. But specifically, this phrase Paul uses, in the flesh, he's keying off of what he used in chapter 7, verse 5, when he said, for when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. He's talking about being in a state. He's talking about um, those who are in a state of fleshliness, um, in, in the realm of the flesh is a good way to think about it. When we were in the realm of the flesh, unsaved, influenced only by our sinful flesh, He's now contrasting that with being in the Spirit. So this is an issue of control that he's talking about. Those who are in the flesh are governed by the flesh. Those who are in the Spirit are governed by the Spirit. And Paul began to develop this idea of being in the Spirit in chapter 7, look at verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, in the newness of the Spirit. So there's the idea that he began to develop there, and then he repeats um, in chapter 8, verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, or who have their being according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, Those who are of the Spirit muse on the things of the Spirit. But here he says it very plainly in verse 9, in the Spirit. 
you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So I want you to see that these are mutually exclusive domains. Christians are not sometimes in the flesh and other times in the Spirit. Christians are always in the Spirit and no longer in the flesh because they've been rescued, redeemed by the Spirit of life in Christ who has united us to Him and brought us into the realm of the Spirit. That's what the idea of being born again is. We've been born from above. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain of light, His dear Son, which is a heavenly kingdom. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ even now, spiritually. I want you to see also that it's interesting how Paul grabbed our attention in Romans 8 verse 1 with this phrase, in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But here he is changing the focus to in the Spirit. In the Spirit. And why does he do that? Well, I would say the primary reason is Paul is concerned to give glory to God. And we have to remember that God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. When we started this letter in Romans chapter 1, Paul intimated this right off the bat when he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, there's God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all involved in salvation and they are the central focus of the book. They are God. Three in one. Three persons and yet one God. So I think Paul is doing the same thing here in chapter 8 when he gives reference to Father, Son, and Spirit. Take a look at chapter 8, verse 3. He says, For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So there again, we have God, Son, Spirit, the triune God. So when Paul uses this phrase, uh, in the Spirit and in Christ, he uses them interchangeably. He is affirming the triunity of God. If you are in Christ, you are of necessity in the Spirit, and vice versa. He is also affirming that Christ is fully divine. Christ is the Spirit of God. Look at verse 9 again. But But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10, he says, and if Christ is in you. So, clearly, he's equating Christ with God, the Spirit of God. They are one and the same in their unity. So this issue is we are no longer under the control of sinful human nature. If you are in the Spirit, you are now controlled by Him. He is your new governing nature. You might ask, well, how do we know if we're in the Spirit? 
What is the evidence that's provided for us to know? Because Christianity, brothers and sisters, is not professed so much as it is evidenced. It's a possession that matters, a possession of the Spirit. So what is the evidence that you have the Spirit in your life? Well, first of all, I think we need to talk a little bit about some wrong ideas that people have held regarding what it means to be in the Spirit. And there are many. They abound. I'm sure you are familiar with many of them. There are some people who believe that you receive the Holy Spirit only after a minister lays hands on you and you receive the Spirit. Or maybe you fall backward and receive the Spirit. Perhaps you've heard that some believe that you must speak in tongues in order to evidence that you have the Spirit of God. Or that you do strange things like fall down and roll on the floor or bark like a dog to show that you have the Spirit of God. The question that we might ask is, why are there so many misrepresentations of the person and work of the Spirit of God? And I think it's undoubtedly true that most Christians have some understanding of the Father and the Son, but when it comes to the Spirit, there's a lack of understanding, a lack of doctrine doctrinal understanding regarding who he is and what his work is. John Owen, in reading his book on the Holy Spirit, which is a wonderful volume, it's dense, so you you take it slowly, as with all his works. But Owen said this regarding the Holy Spirit and why he is so often misrepresented and abused. Listen to this. He says, quote, "...had not these things," and he's referring to things related to the Holy Spirit, his person and his work, had not these things been excellent in themselves and so acknowledged by all Christians, they would not have been so often counterfeited. Men do not adorn themselves with rags or boast of what is under general and just contempt. According to the value of things, so are they liable to abuse. And the more excellent anything is, the more pernicious is the abuse of it. In all the world, there is nothing so vile as that which pretends to be God and is not, nor is anything else capable of so pernicious an abuse. End quote. Owen is saying the most glorious, excellent truths of Scripture are the ones that are most abused. They are most distorted and twisted because we have an enemy who is crafty and deceitful. And he would seek to take what is glorious and distort it so that people are misinformed about what the true work of the Spirit is. And perhaps, and maybe most likely, to put their confidence in an event, in something that happened to say, I have the Holy Spirit of God, rather than what we are learning in Romans 8, which is a lifestyle that every true believer evidences to show that he has the Spirit of God. There are people who um, simply believe that if you profess the right things, you have the Spirit of God. If you are orthodox in your theology, um, or if you have an association with the church, or you, you teach the Bible, um, some have even taken this idea of being in the Spirit in this sense, to catch the Spirit of Christ, that He is in His demeanor a certain way, and so if we just copy Him and live like Him and follow His teachings, we will be in the Spirit like Christ was in the Spirit. Those are all wrong understandings of what Paul means here by being in the Spirit. What do we know from the text so far? And forgive me if this is painfully obvious, but we've 
I think it's helpful to just review some of this because these are the evidences, brothers and sisters, of how you know you are in the Spirit. Verse 4, 4 of chapter 8, those who are in the Spirit walk according to the Spirit. That's your pattern of life, how you live as your general pattern. Are you pursuing holiness, righteousness, and truth? Do you love those things or do you love wickedness and sin? What is your walk? Or verse um, 5, those who are in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's what their delight is. That's where we regularly go back to when there's no pressure upon us. We love to think on the things of the Spirit of God. By implication, verse 7, we are those who are subject to the law of God because we delight in the law of God according to the inward man, like Paul said in Romans 7. There is a new heart disposition toward God and his law, and we, like Paul, want to obey the Scripture 100%. And we're frustrated that we can't. That's how you know that you are in the Spirit. And then here Paul adds another element in verse 9 of chapter 8. He says, here's how you know you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If indeed, that word um, I struggled with a little bit, to be honest, because it's got a few different translations. It's the Greek word hyper, and it's translated most of the time as a conditional, like I have it in the New King James, in, if indeed, or <clears throat> your translation might say, um, if in fact, or if indeed, so something conditional. The other way this can be translated as seeing or sense. So that would read, but you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's got a different sense to it. And I wrestled with this to really try to understand what is it that Paul is saying here. Um, there, the, common, the argument on the side of the commentators who say he's making a statement of fact and not a conditional statement is they're saying that Paul was confident in the saints at Rome that he wrote to, that they were spirit-filled people. He wasn't questioning their salvation. So why would he make a conditional statement here rather than a, a statement of affirmation? That's really the argument. And, and they follow it through pretty well by saying, look, if you, if you look at how he addresses them as saints at Rome in the opening of the letter, if you look at chapter 15, verse 14, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. There's a, a confidence that he has in the people he's writing to that by and large they are saved, spirit-filled individuals. But most translators understand this word, if indeed, in its conditional sense, and I'm tending to agree with it that it actually is written in the conditional here because he follows it up in verses 10 and 11 with two more conditionals. And if Christ is in you. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Christ is in you. There are conditions that he's outlining three times. And I think that's important. It's important because Paul is diagnostic when he writes Consider 1 Corinthians 11.28. This is the text that we come back to week after week in our communion service. He says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why does he do that? Because he knows that not everyone in the visible church is spirit-filled. There is wheat growing alongside the tares. 
So the warning always goes out. Examine yourself. And the true believers, those who are spirit-filled, they do examine themselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified or you fail to meet the test. So again, there's an emphasis on be willing to self-examine. And I think that really holds true with the whole of Scripture. I mean, another psalm verse that we, uh, that we come back to time and time again is Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's diagnostic. And then God himself in Haggai 1.5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So the warning goes out. The appeal to consider your ways. Test and see if you are in the faith. Look at these diagnostics in Romans 8 and see, do I line up with these? Is this true of me? Do I know that I'm in the Spirit or am I still in the flesh? So I think Paul's overarching concern here is he, he wants to assure the people of God of their great and glorious salvation. He wants us to know, the Lord wants us to know, that we are in the Spirit, that we are no longer governed by the flesh, and here are the evidences for that. He wants us to know that those who have been justified by faith are being sanctified, set apart by the Spirit more and more, holiness, and we will be glorified at the end. So back in Romans 8, Paul is saying, you are in the Spirit, and he, notice this, he only gives one condition. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he uses the word dwells, which is derived from the word for house. It's the Greek word ikos. It's like the prefix in English, eco. You get it with words like economy, which is the law of the house. Nomos is law, eco, house. So it's really a word that means to reside in, to take up residence in, to inhabit, and to remain there. That's this idea of dwelling in you. <clears throat> it's the same word that Paul used in Romans 7, verses 17 and 18, when he said, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform to completion what is good I do not find. So this idea of dwelling, he, he talked about with regard to sin. Sin dwells in us. That is in our flesh. It has taken up a permanent residence in us, and it lives there. But that's not the real me, says Paul, and that's not the real you and me, brother and sister. We have been born again, and so here is this dynamic. We now are a new creature in Christ, a new spirit, which is incarcerated inside of unredeemed humanity, a body of sin, like he calls it in Romans chapter 6. Sin dwells in your flesh and always will, but the Spirit of God dwells in you, the real you, in your spirit. He is now the master of the house. He is the one who controls you. This is another way of saying Jesus Christ dwells in you as a man in his own house who lives comfortably and with dominion. That's the picture of the Spirit dwelling in you. 
And we have to ask, again, how does that happen to a person? Is there something that we can do to make that happen? And we have to go back in our thinking to the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just as the wind is sovereign in its movement, so is the movement of the Spirit of God in the hearts of his people. He moves sovereignly like the wind. We don't control that. He comes upon whom he will. This is a work of God. And by the way, as a connection to verse 8, this is why we are pleasing to God because what is God pleased with from last week? He's pleased with himself. He's pleased with the work of his hands. He's pleased with the work of his hands in his people. This is the evidence of it in verse 9. The Spirit of God moves as he will. He comes to dwell in you. And this language of dwelling is extremely significant. This is something I was struck with this week as I was thinking about this text. I want to give you four things to consider about this language and why it's so significant. Here's the first. When we talk about God coming to dwell with us, we're talking about a holy God coming to dwell with unholy sinners. Holy God has come to dwell inside of sinners. That's an astounding truth. We know that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Habakkuk chapter 1. He cannot look on wickedness with favor. God hates sin. He hates sin and he hates the sinner. In fact, his wrath burns against it and him and her, all of those. This is where we started in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's all of us, brothers and sisters, by nature. God evidences himself in creation, but sinful man suppresses that knowledge. He will not give glory to God. And the same is true in redemption and salvation. God has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, alone. And sinful man will not accept that message, apart from a work of grace of the Spirit coming to dwell in his heart. He suppresses the truth. So God and we are at war with one another by nature. The scripture in Colossians 1 says, We are alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works. We are enmity against God. We hate God and his thoughts. So why would holy God ever want to dwell with sinners? Well, the answer that Scripture gives is, I think, summed up well in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This love of God is a love that loves his enemies and is willing to send what is most precious to him, his beloved son, to die in our place, those who have no regard for him. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
This is a great love of God that has come to us, brothers and sisters. This is an everlasting love, like Jeremiah talks about in chapter 31. A love that shows compassion, kindness, and mercy to his enemies and is willing to lay down his son's life for ours. Why would God want to dwell with sinners? Because he wanted to. Because it's a testimony to the greatness and the otherworldliness of his love. It brings him great glory. But God is still holy. And he is a consuming fire toward all sin and sinners. So we have to understand, he cannot indwell us as we are in our natural state, in the flesh. He he cannot indwell us in that state where we are controlled by the flesh. So what does he do to make a suitable home for himself? He has to transform us from within. I'm reminded of an example that Dr. Sinclair Ferguson gave in one of his sermons when he was talking about the work of the Spirit coming to dwell with man. And he said, so often we think of the Spirit coming to dwell with us as a person remodeling their home. They may add a wing or a a room, a porch onto the existing house. They might put in a a second floor and and maybe a staircase. Um, They they move the furniture around. They, They do everything that's required to make the place comfortable. And Dr. Ferguson said, Actually, what the Lord does is he blows up your house and he creates it new so that he can dwell in it comfortably. The old house is not comfortable for him. It's wretched. He hates it. So he creates us new, fit for his presence. The way that the scripture describes it is this. We were brought near by the blood of Christ. God had to cleanse us by the Blood, the precious blood of his own son. That's a euphemism for his death on the cross. His blood is cleansing, which washes us from our sins. That is what prepares him to be able to come and dwell with us. We have to be cleansed. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1 verse 7. We've been justified by his blood. In other words, God has done everything required to make you, church, a suitable dwelling place for himself. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. That is, completely set apart from our sins in his mind. And he's made us new creations in Christ by regenerating us and birthing us again spiritually. Now, he calls us the members of the household of God. But he also calls us a holy temple in the Lord. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. This is our call to worship this morning. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place, habitation of God in the Spirit. This is remarkable. The temple in the Old Testament and the tabernacle before it were the place where God met with his people. It was the dwelling place of God. And the rule of the house of the tabernacle is holiness. Ezekiel chapter 43. 
So God dwells with his people, but holiness is the requirement, right? That's why there were so many barriers and divisions within the tabernacle and within the temple. No one could just come and have uh, unrestricted access to God on their own. Their access was measured and prescribed by the Lord. But those, those pictures of the temple and the tabernacle were, were of types. They were to, to figure something that was coming later, which is what he's talking about in Ephesians 2. Those temporary structures give way to the true structure, the true temple, which is you, church. It's us. It's the church universal. It's a spiritual body where we are members of the household of God and we are called a holy temple in the Lord. The scripture describes that we are the the dwelling place of God both individually. You as an individual are the dwelling place of God. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and and you are not your own? That's said in the context of fleeing sexual immorality in the body. You are the temple of God. Do not entertain sin because the holy God dwells with you. It's also spoken corporately in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, corporate church, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Where does He dwell in us, brothers and sisters? Pastor Stan taught on this last week in Ephesians chapter 3 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, right? He dwells in the heart of every believer. And where two or three are gathered in the midst of them, Christ is, right? So corporately, he's in the midst of us as well. Paul says in another sense, this whole building, this, this building, which is the temple of God, the people of God, is already in the heavens, He says in 2 Corinthians 5.1, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's why we're seated with Christ in the heavens now. The, The building is the people is with God now in heaven. Loved ones, how often do we think about this precious truth that God dwells in us, that holy God dwells in us? Next time you're tempted to sin, Let this be what you think about. This is the key to victory over sin in any given moment. Meditate on this truth, that holy God dwells inside you. You are in him because he is in you. Dr. Lloyd-Jones again had a wonderful quote, I thought, with regard to this topic. Listen to what he says. And this is a man who was a pastor from 1939 um, until the late 60s, really, when he retired. But listen to um, the wisdom that God gave him. He says, people come to me and say, I am praying God to deliver me from this sin. But what they really need is to realize that the Holy Ghost is dwelling in their hearts. That is the way to meet the devil. We must not be negative. We must not merely pray to be delivered realize who is dwelling in your body. Then you will find it difficult to abuse or misuse that body. Let us meditate more on these things. Let us contemplate them. Let us spend time with them. Let us remind ourselves of them daily. It is the real secret of assurance and of enjoying the Christian life, 
of being more than conquerors and of being such that God can use us to attract others to a like knowledge and to a like privilege. You want the real secret of assurance that you belong to the Lord and to walk confidently with Him? Remember this truth. Holy God dwells in you. Holy God dwells in you. He loves you, but He never, ever approves of sin. He hates it. Sin is offensive, ugly, foul, disgusting to Him, and that's precisely why He sent His precious Son to die for it, to condemn it. Come out from among them, the Lord says, and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So, the first reason the Spirit of God dwelling is so significant is we've got holy God dwelling in us, and He has cleansed us and made us a suitable dwelling, but we must be mindful of our holiness. Secondly, His dwelling in us is permanent. His dwelling in us is permanent. We get this right from the text in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. He uses the present active tense. In other words, once he comes to dwell and take up residence, he remains. If he could come or go at will, Paul would have said something like, you are in the Spirit when the Spirit of God dwells in you. Or at times when he dwells in you, you are in the Spirit. He doesn't say that. And Paul really supports this truth in the second half of verse 9 where he says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not of his. He is not his. He does not belong to him is what he's saying. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ at any time, he simply doesn't belong to the Lord. He's not a Christian. You can think of this very much like an on-off switch. You're either on in the Spirit or you're off in the flesh. Probably the best commentary on what we're talking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, is John chapter 14. So I'd invite you to turn with me there. John chapter 14. This is a a series from the upper room discourses when the Lord Jesus is about to go to the cross and he is, he's preparing his disciples for leaving them, but informing them that he's going to send his spirit in their, in his place. Look what he says starting in verse 15 of John 14. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the Greek word parakletos. It's, it's when we say paraclete, that's where this comes from. Paraclete means the one who is called alongside in order to help, to empower, to defend. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, that he may, notice this, abide with you forever. There is an emphasis that the Lord is placing on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whom he will send, starting at Pentecost, when he's poured out, that he will have a permanent dwelling. He will abide with you forever. And why is that so significant? Why am I calling this out? Because when you consider the Old Testament economy and how the Spirit of God operated He did not always abide with his people permanently, did he? You think about the example of Moses and the 70 elders in Numbers chapter 11, right? Moses was feeling overwhelmed uh, that he had the care, the charge of so many people 
who were clamoring for food constantly and he could not satisfy them. So he cries out to God and he says, God, it'd be better for you just to kill me than for me to continue in this condition. And God graciously has him call 70 elders and he takes from the spirit that is on Moses, that is upon him, and he distributes the spirit to these 70 elders to empower them to be able to prophesy. But the text then says that they prophesied and then they did not do it again. It was a temporary empowering that the Spirit gave them as He came upon them for ministry to speak God's Word, but then that was it. He did not continue with them. Or you think of Samson who was empowered for a time as a judge in Israel. He had the Spirit come upon him to do mighty things, but then the Lord sadly departed from him. Saul, the first king in Israel, was anointed with the Holy Spirit in 1 Samuel chapter 10, but the Lord later withdrew his spirit from him when he rejected him from being king. That's why David prays in Psalm 51, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He saw that firsthand with King Saul. But in John chapter 14, Jesus is identifying a key difference between the operation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And and this is an area where I think a lot of um, work has been done. There's not a lot of consensus sometimes on how the Spirit operated in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. But I come back to John chapter 14 because these are the words of the Lord himself. And he here is marking a sea change in how the Spirit operated from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And here it is in verse 17. He says, The Spirit of truth, referring to the one whom the Father will send, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. For he, note this, dwells with you and will be in you. And the word for dwells that he uses there is not the same word that Paul is using in Romans 8. That's important to note. Paul is using the word meno in um, John 14, which means to remain with, to sojourn with, as one who was a travel companion um, would go with another. He does not use the word which means to inhabit as a house. So Jesus is saying that He, the Spirit of truth, dwells with you. He's speaking to his disciples. He's actually referring to himself in the third person. He is the Spirit of truth who has been dwelling with, sojourning with his disciples. But he now, in another form, is going to be in his disciples. He's going to take up permanent residence in their hearts. It's important to understand um, this, I think, regarding the Spirit of God. The Spirit has always, regarding salvation, has always operated in the same way. That is to say, the people of God have always been saved by God's grace through faith in Messiah. Whether it was in the Old Testament looking forward to Messiah coming or in the New Testament now looking back to who he's been revealed as, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a work, an operation of the Spirit of God that acts on the hearts of all his people of all time in order to remove the stony heart and to give them a heart of flesh that believes. The stony heart will never believe. It's not a heart that can believe. It does not have faith. So the Spirit has always given his people a heart of flesh to believe. But as regards serving the Lord, now we're talking about a different category, service to the Lord, what we see is that 
the Spirit did not empower everyone in the physical community of Israel, national Israel in the Old Testament, only specific classes of people for specific tasks. And those were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Those were the three classes that were empowered with the Holy Spirit for specific jobs. But sometimes he left them, as we just heard about with Saul and Samson and the 70 elders. In the New Testament economy, what happens? Well, everyone in the New Testament economy who is a believer, who is born again, and in the community is spirit-filled. Everyone is considered a prophet, a priest, and a king. So what was a small pouring of the Spirit in the Old Testament now becomes a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament worldwide on all His people. And everyone is empowered for meaningful service to the Lord using the gifts that He has endowed them with. The Spirit dwells in us in a deeper, more intimate, more abiding, that is to say permanent relationship ever since Pentecost we hear about this permanence forecasted from Ezekiel when he says this in Ezekiel 36, 27, speaking as of the Lord or speaking for the Lord, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You remember that God found fault with national Israel for not keeping the first covenant, Right? They didn't abide in it because they all didn't have saving faith. The Holy Spirit was not with all of them. But with the New, Te the New Testament community, the New Covenant, everyone is regenerate in the church. I use the terms visible church sometimes. That's a way of distinguishing those whom we see with our eyes versus those who are truly members of the church invisibly that only God sees. So in the New Covenant community, all are regenerate. All have the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts and have a genuine faith in Christ. And that guarantees that we will walk in His way. God Himself is unilaterally guaranteeing that His people will be His people because we will keep His law. He Himself working in our hearts to guarantee it. I want you to notice something else regarding this indwelling of the Spirit. In verse 18 of John 14, he says, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So first Jesus said that it was the paraclete who would come, the Holy Spirit. Now he says he himself will come. And then look what he says starting in verse 19. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. There's the dwelling that we're talking about, except it's not just the Spirit. It's the Spirit, the Son, and the Father, the triune God, all coming to dwell in the hearts of His people. That's why Paul is calling the Spirit, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Triune God comes to dwell in us. 
and his dwelling is a permanent one. Thirdly, I want to show you that it's significant that he dwells in us both to guide us and to protect us. To guide us and to protect us. You remember when Israel was in the wilderness, the Lord led them, didn't he? He led them as a pillar of cloud by day and a a pillar of fire by night. How does that continue today for the people of God who are indwelt by the Spirit of God? Well, look over in chapter 16 of John, just the other, across the page. In verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So, Christ is speaking to his apostles, to his disciples, and the immediate context is those apostles are going to write Scripture. So he is going to lead them into all truth and bring those things to their remembrance after he is gone. But this is a a truth that he has for all of his people as well. The Spirit of God in one of his functions is to guide his people. And he doesn't guide us to a particular place geographically so much as he guides us to truth, to truth, into all truth, to know the Word of God. He is also called the Holy Spirit for a reason, because he guides us into holiness. He is the sanctifier in our hearts. He is the one who brings conviction of sin. He's the one who prompts us to repent when we sin. He is the agent who is constantly transforming the way that we think. He's transforming us by the renewing of our minds as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So he is our guidance but he also is our protection. Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. You know, brothers and sisters, when you're in trouble, you don't have to hop on a plane and run to a city that's in the Near East in order to be protected. Where do we run? We run to the Word of God and we call on His name in prayer and He hears us. He hears the prayers of the righteous because he dwells near us. In fact, very near us. How much nearer can you get than dwelling in your own heart? I love Psalm 46, which is our corporate reading this morning, because this idea really is um, synthesized in, in Psalm 46 as well, that he is a very present help in trouble. Just consider a little bit of this psalm with me. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And then he talks about catastrophic cosmic events that may happen. He says, even though the earth is removed, even though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now stop there for just a moment with me. If you think about present-day Jerusalem in the Middle East, there is no river that runs through the city. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about a river which makes glad the city of God. 
This is pointing forward to the messianic kingdom of God, which is here and now in this gospel age, in the hearts of all of his people. This is, in fact, what Jesus speaks about in John chapter 7 when he said, On the last day, the great day of the feast, he stood up and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is what the psalmist has in mind here. This fulfillment is God is dwelling by his Holy Spirit in the place that is very near us, in our hearts, where he provides protection, refuge, strength, and gladness. Gladness, no matter what is going on. Brothers and sisters, is this world a disaster? More and more every day, are we dismayed as we read the news headlines? I suggest you don't. This is why. The earth might be removed. The mountains might be carried into the midst of the sea. He talks about political turmoil. The nations raged in verse 6. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. No matter what is going on around us, and even in turmoil within us because of our own sinfulness, remember this. The Lord of hosts is with you. He is your refuge. And I want you to see verse 10. This is a verse that we need to meditate on, all of us. Be still and know that I am God. What do you do when you are deeply troubled and distressed? Well, the inclination of the flesh is to panic, to be anxious, to try and think of solutions. Here's God's answer. Stop. Be still and know that I am God. Meditate on me. Consider the Lord that he is among us. He is our refuge and he is our strength. And as you do that, brothers and sisters, you will find that you are glad in him. He makes glad the city of God, the place, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High because he is in the midst of her. Lastly and quickly, dwelling indicates an ownership, an ownership He says, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Literally in the Greek is, this person is not of his. It does not belong to him. Believers belong to Jesus Christ. And the truth is he owns us because he's paid for us with the blood of his dear son. Those who have the Spirit belong to God. We've been bought with a price, as Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You're not your own anymore. That means you don't, you don't live for your own pleasure. You don't live for your own dreams and glory and honor, but for His in all things. And wonderfully, as you do that, as the Spirit really is causing you to grow by His grace because He's prompting you to look at Him, you will find that His pleasures are your pleasures. He will change your very desires so that your desires are now His desires. Wonderful truth. We are 
those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is described as a guarantee of our inheritance. The Lord has made an investment in each one of us. He has made a deposit, a down payment as one who is purchasing land or a home. And that down payment, that seal is His Holy Spirit who is in your life. And He's evidencing that truth to you by how you think, your mindedness, by your loves and your hates, by your walk every single day. Let me ask you this, friends. Are you in the Spirit this morning? Does He dwell in you, maybe is the better question, given what we've learned. When you reflect in your own heart, ask this question, who is my master? Do I still serve sin and obey the lust of that desire? Or do I serve God in righteousness? The Lord wants His people to be assured of their salvation. He wants you to know that you're not in the flesh anymore, but you are in the Spirit. And those who are evidence it because they believe the gospel message. They believe the truth that Jesus is their only righteousness. They are having the law of God fulfilled in them. They're being sanctified, becoming more like Christ in how they live. They walk according to the Spirit. They think according to the Spirit. They have peace with God. Their conscience has been cleansed from a, a guilt of sin. And they continue to confess their sin daily so that they maintain a clean conscience. They're subject to the law of God. And then from today's study, we learn this. You are aware that He dwells in you, the Holy God, and that should have a profound impact on your holiness, right? You're also aware that He will never leave you, that His indwelling is permanent. And that gives a great confidence that we will keep the spirit of His law. We will. He will cause us to walk in His way. And we will have boldness to fight against sin. And we're also aware that He is leading us into all truth and protecting us from true evil. Your soul cannot be touched. This world may crumble around us, but your soul is safe in Him. He's guarding it, preserving it by His own life. I pray you're encouraged this morning, loved ones. Next time, we're going to look further at assurances. There's more. There's more assurances that He gives to know that the Spirit indeed dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, what a grace to be together, to open your word, and to see who you are and what you've done for us. Father, we, um, we are undeserving sinners, that you should come and even pay attention to us, give us any regard at all is astounding, let alone that you should Make every provision to change us and transform us that you might dwell with us, the eternal God with finite, feeble man. That you would be that greater governing power in us. That sin, the body of sin, would be greatly deprived of its power in your presence. Father, thank you. Thank you for making us aware of what is true of us who are in Christ that we might meditate on these things and that, that that might be our help in time of trouble. When we're tempted, when we're tried, when we're in despair, may we look to you, may we stand still and know that you are God and that you are able to do far more than we think or can even ask. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen.